Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're gonna be speaking with someone that knows a thing or two about scaling and building companies, but uh, but also about listening to machines and really understanding what's what's going on. So I guess without further ado, sorry Joskovic, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. So originally born and raised in Israel, and I understand that you were raised in, in a kibbutz. So, so, so what is a kibbutz? What is this uh, you know, uh, upbringing? Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So, so a kibbutz um, is a, you could call it a failed uh, social experiment uh, in retrospect. Um, it, it, it's basically a commune um, where different people, families join, and the whole idea is that everybody gets what they need and gives back what they can, right? So one person is in agriculture, so he takes care of the fields. Another person is a teacher, and then they get any, everything they need to support their family. And it's a really, you could look at it kind of as a hippie commune, in a sense, where all the kids grow up together, and the values are very much those of, of kind of sharing and taking care of one another. And I spent ages two to seven in a kibbutz. Uh, so in my early childhood, those are the values I grew up in. And I think that you can see them in kind of Augury, the company that I uh, built and run today. Very cool. And we'll talk about that and, and culture in just a little bit. So so then you went and you, you went to study on the equivalent of MIT there. You, you were actually a, a student of electrical engineering in, in, in physics. So, so how did you develop... Uh, that type of interest, you know, for engineering and, and for physics? So as a kid, my, my dad is also an engineer. And from an early age, <coughs> sorry, they, they wanted to surround me. They made sure to surround me by uh, with computers. Uh, so I got, I'm, I'm kind of aging myself here, but I got my first computer when I was in second grade. And I kind of fell in love. I, I learned how to program when I was, um, I took kind of a course in Pascal when I was, um, 10 years old, then I learned how to program in C um, when I was 10 years old, and, and then I taught myself from there on. So I was always into computers, and it was only natural for me when I got to university, uh, when I got into the Technion, um, to go after electronics, 
uh, engineering and uh, physics. Got it. And after this, you went into into Intel. So this was obviously your big experience prior to really going at it and and launching your own thing. So so how was the experience working at Intel? Just really really good. And I actually got to Intel as a student as an internship. And when I was finishing my uh, my bachelor degree, I, I I always knew that I'm going to start my own company. And I said, okay, I'm going to have two years now after my, after school to get the best kind of education I can outside of, of university to kind of build the tool, tools in my toolbox to, to be successful. And I had multiple options. I could go for a master's degree. I could go work at a startup. I could stay at Intel or just quit everything and start my own company. And I went and asked a number of really smart and experienced people what I should do. And surprisingly, they all said the same thing. You should stay another two, I should stay another two years at a large organization to understand what it looks like um, when it's successful. Right? And I learned a lot of things, both what to do and what not to do <coughs> from a cultural kind of um, perspective. Um, what are organizational values? What are the different departments? What they do, how they work, how they interact and, and whatnot. And I think from a very early stage uh, when building Augury with my co-founder, we took a lot of those lessons and put them into into practice. Got it. So let's talk about then, um, you know, how you met your co-founder and how you guys, you know, really start to, because at some point, you know, eight years ago, you decided to really uh, drop everything and, and really go at it with, with your company now, with, with Augury. But, um, but basically, uh, how did you meet Gal? Shaul, your your co-founder, and how did you guys start to really think about, you know, what's possible, no? And 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 how did that transform into you saying, I gotta give my notice, and it's my time to shine. Yeah, so I actually met Gal in my first semester uh, when I was studying electrical engineering. He he studied computer science, and we met in the kind of the basic math classes, uh, and we we became good friends right away. And then we spent the next five years just talking about technology and, and startups and, you know, growing up in Israel or being studying in Israel, it's very similar to kind of being in the Silicon Valley. Everyone around you is in startups. Um, so we always knew that we are going to start something and uh, do it together. Um, when I started working at Intel, I said, okay, we're going to, I'm going to be here for two years. And then after one year, um, I understood I had enough and really started to really think about what's next. <clears throat> and of course, my first option was to go to Gaul and start talking to him about, look, we've been talking so long about doing something. Uh, I think it's time to kind of jump into the water and, and start swimming. Got it. So so when you guys uh, were having those discussions, I mean, was there like, a specific markets that you were looking at or a specific problems or how did the specific idea of, of Alguri, which you would go out and, and pursue, how, how did that come about? So when I was in school, I, I focused on uh, speech recognition using machine learning. And when you think about it, um, it's very similar to what we do today. So today at Alguri, we take machine sounds, so the noises that machines make, and we analyze them and we try to find meaning inside of them and tell you what's wrong. 
which is very similar to what you would do with uh, speech recognition, right? You take audio and try to find meaning inside of it. So the core technology, you could say, came from, from my project at school. And at the time, Gal was working at a medical device startup. And they built this kind of large machine with a lot of moving parts, similar to a small kind of MRI uh, system. And he was sent to a customer's uh, facility to try to understand why the machine isn't working, right? From a software perspective, to understand where, where the bug is. And as a software developer, <coughs> he found himself kind of washing the filters um, and fixing the problem. And when he when he got home, he told me, look, I could hear something is wrong from, from kind of the moment I entered the room. Why can't my computer code, my, the software understand that something is wrong? And we started kind of, uh, looking into that problem of diagnosing me- mechanical systems based on audio and found our way into the market from there. Got it. So basically becoming the doctor of machines with code. I love it. I love it. Sorry. So then, so then tell us about it. So then, so then how did you, what did you guys do next? So the first thing we did, we, we were still working at our, at our old jobs. Um, we decided to take one day off uh, every week, and spend 20% of our time on what what became Augury. And we followed a very strict kind of regimen of lean startup. Uh, back at the time, it was called customer development. So we, we said, okay, we can diagnose the machines based on audio. What type of machines, right? So we went to talk to car fleets, and we went to talk to commercial buildings and factories and uh, overseas uh, international ship, shipping um, to really understand where the market is. And we spent roughly six months um, in, in that capacity. Um, and when we, this, the day we left um, our, our work, which is August 2011, we decided that before we bring any external investor, we really want to prove that one, the technology actually works. And two, that there is a market for it. And we started bootstrapping our way um, into kind of into the market. And it took us two and a half years uh, being self-funded, just the two of us, until we got to a very large bed agreement with a Fortune 100 company here in the States. And we then took that contract and raised our first uh, kind of VC funding here in the U.S. And I understand that uh, obviously bootstrapping, and especially for uh, for a hardware company, you know, um, it's is definitely a tough one. Uh, and and I know that in this case, you guys were almost on the brink of a bankruptcy in in several instances. And and I understand as well that there were some some fun stories around credit cards. So what happened there? Yeah. So we had um, we originally we opened the company in, in Israel, and then when we started doing business with um, American companies. We also had a bank account here. So somehow we found ourselves two people with uh, four uh, different credit cards. Um, And there was one specific day where we got an email from both of the bank accounts that told us, look, you're a commercial account. You can't have $100 uh, in the bank. It just doesn't work that way. And we will have to, you know, if you don't fix this and, and within a week, we will have to shut down uh, to close your, your account. And at that very same day, when we got those two emails, 
we received um, a news from one of our from our very first kind of pre-seed investor uh, that he's cutting us a check for forty thousand dollars. So we were just two days away from uh, closing our bank accounts uh, when the check came in. Wow! So quite a quite procrastinating a little bit there, no? <laughs> it's the, living uh, on the edge. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So so I guess um, you know I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now uh, from all over the world thinking. Uh, should I, you know, relocate to the U.S. and go after the big opportunity or should I, you know, keep being maybe in Europe or Asia or whatever they're listening to us from? Like, how do you how do you recommend or, or let's say, for example, in your own case, like why did you make the decision that that it was crucial for you guys to really come here to the U.S. and have operations in the U.S.? So for for two major reasons, one. You know, if you look at the largest companies uh, in the last couple of decades, they were all built here, or not all, but mostly built here. So the knowledge, the ecosystem, finding the right talent with the right experience to really help you scale, it's much easier here than, than anywhere else. Um, and then the second reason is that our market is here, right? We, we specifically are going after uh, industrial companies, after manufacturing companies, and for us, the, the U.S., specifically kind of the East Coast, the Midwest area, is where they're mostly concentrated. That, that's why we chose New York to be our kind of headquarters. Got it. And I guess in the, um, in the bootstrapping you know, phase, why did you guys wait so long to, um, to go out and, and get the investment in? Again, we really wanted to prove <coughs> that we have problem solution fit or close to kind of product market fit because it's much harder to kind of pivot and, and change your way after you, you get the first uh, investor in, right? So at the beginning, as, as I mentioned earlier, we were looking at five different markets, which are five very different businesses. So going into automotives versus shipment versus factories versus kind of commercial facility management are four or five very different companies. And we wanted to have the kind of the quiet headspace to make that decision without having to optimize for what does the investor want and, and kind of being uh, that kind of uneasiness of feeling that they gave us money to do X and now we want to do Y and we'll need to manage that conversation. So we decided that we will keep uh, bootstrapping until we really prove uh, where we're going. Got it. And and talk to us about the fundraising process. How was that process for you guys? And because how much money have you guys raised to date? So to date, we've raised close to sixty million. Uh, across, yeah, across uh, four rounds. And you know, when we started, it was again twenty eleven. We actually started raising money in twenty end of 2013, uh, 2014. <coughs> and back then hardware was the worst thing you could do or being a hardware company is the worst thing you could do and focusing on the industrial market, right. Versus being a, building a social network or a photo sharing app, uh, which was all the craze back then. So we had a really tough time finding the right investors that are really looking to build something that will transform a whole industry and not just looking for the next big kind of um, uh, craze. 
And luckily, we found um, it, for the seed round, we found Howard Morgan from First Round, and he has a very deep technology uh, background as well as um, you know he's on the board of John Deere and he knows the industrial market very well. So he was really excited about the opportunity and, and the problem we're trying to solve. And he was our first investor, and from there we started to really build it. Got it. And I guess the um, for the people that are listening. You know, you were alluding to it a little bit, you know, on the business model of, of Alguri, but, but how do you guys really make money? I mean, how, what does the business model of the company look like today? Yeah, so we, we are a full stack company in the sense that we design and manufacture our, our uh, own uh, hardware, as well as <laughs> do the connectivity and, the, and design and run the, the diagnostics algorithms. Um, we work with the largest manufacturers today. so could think of the largest beverage companies, the largest food companies, pharmaceuticals, consumer packaged goods, they're all working with us. And our goal is to make their production lines more productive. Now, even though we have a hardware component, we we try to be pure SaaS, right? So we give away the hardware for free and then charge an ongoing uh, per machine per year uh, type of model. Okay. And then in terms of like having dual offices, because you guys have the probably the office here in New York and then another office there in, in Israel. So how do you go about, you know, like having the, the dual office approach? It's challenging. I won't say it's not. And the way we were structured today is our product engineering um, is in Israel. And then here in the U.S. we have in New York, we have the sales, marketing, customer operations, customer success, and whatnot. <clears throat> and when we just started, you know, it was very important for us to focus on culture because we knew that we're not building an Israeli company or an American company. We're building a global company because our customers are global and we will need to serve them everywhere. So we put a lot of focus on culture. And I think one big understanding for us, um, and it took us quite a bit of time to get there, is that you can't force one culture, one company culture around kind of all the different uh, sites and different teams that you have, simply because engineering and sales have very different, not very, but have kind of small changes in the culture, as well as, you know, Americans versus Israelis versus people in Europe. They come from different backgrounds and the norms are a bit different. And our guiding principle today is that when you go into the Augury office here in New York, you know that you're in New York and you know that you're in Augury. And then when you go to the Israeli office, you know that you're in Israel and you know that you're in Augury, right? So trying to have a core language that everybody speaks and everybody really understands each other um, is really critical for us. And and then we don't want to really force um, both sides to really be the 100% the same. Understood. And then I guess from the... From your early days in your life, uh, as part of the experience with the kibbutz, how did you apply some of that to, to the culture of Auguri? So our first value, um, company value, is people first. And I believe that it really stems from there. It's not about who you are or what you do. I mean, everyone on the team we treat them as people and then also outside, right? So we, we, we say that we do business with people and not companies. 
And we have multiple examples of champions that, you know, used to work with us in one company, then they left and started working for another company and they took us with them to their new, to their new place. Right. And having this real people first approach, um, one is crucial the way I see it to building a strong team because a company is nothing more than a set of people that are all fighting towards the same cause. And if you don't have the best people, then nothing else matters. You will never have the best technology. You will never have the best uh, sales team and whatnot. Um, so I think that specific value came from my kind of upbringing. And I guess the, um, you know, some of the stuff that you guys are doing, you know, involves cutting edge machine learning and AI technology, I guess, you know, especially for the people that are listening, because I think that on, on AI and machine learning, there's just so much noise out there. Everyone in their mother is saying that they're using AI and machine learning. So I guess, where do you think this entire, you know, machine learning and AI, you know, type of, type of space or, or segment is, is, is really heading as a whole? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll quote a survey uh, from Gartner um, they, that came out earlier or at the end of last year, where they found that 82% of companies have a digital transformation strategy. Um, and yet only 7% of boards feel that they're getting good ROI. Okay. And the reason for that is everyone took the approach of, I need to have digital, I need to have AI, just to say that I have AI. And that doesn't work. What does work is saying, I want to solve a specific problem. What is the best way to solve it? Oh, AI looks like a good tool. And you see a lot of horizontal platforms, right? Give me all the data and I will crunch it and tell you, provide insights. Whereas we took a very different approach. We are a very vertical provider, solution provider, right? We don't say that, well, we talk, we say that we do AI, but we don't lead the conversation with it. Right? We lead the conversation with what is the impact of machines failing unexpectedly in your organization? Let's try to solve that. The way we do it to, to scale is through AI. So I think over time, much like um, databases, right? So it used to be people had no SQL databases. Today, nobody talks about what database they use. Right? It's just a tool in their, it's just one piece of their full stack. I expect AI to, to be the same. And then people will go back to focus on what is the problem you're trying to solve? What value are you actually providing to the customer? Got it. Got it. And, and I guess, you know, imagine today, Sar, uh, you go to sleep and then you wake up, let's say, five years later. And, and you wake up in a world where the a vision of Auguri is fully realized. What does that world look like? So we're here to build a world where people can always rely on the machines that matter. And machines that matter is, is the key phrase. For our customers, the machines that matter are the critical machines on the production line, right? So the machines that fills the, the bottles with beer or, or the machines that cut the diapers, right? But if you take a step back and look at kind of greater society, Everything we do in our lives depends on machines. And so electricity, running water, um, the medicine that keeps us and our kids healthy all depends on machines. And we're here to make them more reliable and, and, and dependable. And there is one story that really stands out 
a couple of years ago, on, on August 5th, uh, 2017, the skies over New Orleans kind of opened up and 11 inches of rain poured down on the city within a couple of hours. And as a result, the streets were flooded. Over 100,000 people were evacuated from their homes. And a million people suffered from uh, property damage. Now, this isn't Katrina, right? This is a random storm that just swept through the region. And the reason that it got to these floods is because New Orleans <coughs> is below sea level. And then they have eight critical pumps that pump the waters from the street back into the ocean. And during that specific day, four of those pumps were down for scheduled maintenance. And two of the other pumps stopped working during the storm. So two pumps caused 100,000 people to lose their homes. Right? That's where we are today. So if I wake up and our vision is fully realized, that will never happen again. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I guess uh, for the uh, folks that are listening, uh, this is a question that I typically ask the, the guests that come on the show. And that is uh, knowing what you know now, because I mean, now you've been at it for eight years, you know, many experiences, especially the early years, you know, in the brink of bankruptcy, many, many instances as you were bootstrapping the business. Uh, I guess if you had the opportunity of of going back in time and, and let's say having a chat with that younger SAR, the SAR that was at Intel about to really make the leap of faith to to start Auguri, if you had that chance to maybe have a coffee with that uh, SAR and sit down, let's say for, for 10 or 15 minutes and Give that younger SAR one piece of business advice before launching Auguri. What would you tell that younger SAR and, 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 and why, knowing what you know now? I think the biggest learning for me um, is that as a founder or a CEO of a company, of a, of a growing company, your job changes every two quarters. Right? So every six months, there, is very different, there are very different challenges that you need to do. And the main recommendation, and that's what kind of took me time to understand and I do today is always be on the lookout for what's next. And so every quarter or two, I, I go on these kind of discovery um, journeys, talking to people that have been through what I'm just, what, what I'm about to go through and try to understand what are the major pitfalls? What do I need to um, start planning for what what skill sets do I need to start uh, building for myself, or what type of people do I need to surround myself with now in the company um, as we go international, as we move into more into enterprise sales. Right, so always be on the lookout to what you don't know that you don't know, and be very curious and proactive in figuring that out. I love it. I love it, Sar. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and, and say hi? So my e email is sar at augury.com. I'm always open to helping entrepreneurs. And um, on LinkedIn, you can find me there, Twitter. Um, and, and Twitter is yasko underscore s. Uh, so please reach out. Amazing. Well, Sar, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.